0: Well, it is a privilege to be here, and thank you, Sid. When he made the comment about the different kind of people here, and he said, Spick and Span, I don't know how many of you understand that Spick is a derogatory name for Puerto Ricans, of which I'm one. So, uh, (laughs) I, I thought that was a good introduction to the multicultural element of... I know he wasn't thinking of that, but the way my mind works uh, gives you a little window of how it works. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. It's an honor to be here, and uh, <clears throat> I'll try not to make any other comments that will embarrass your minister here. Um, yeah, I'm pastoring Las Tierras uh, Community Church the um, East El Paso, and as Sid had mentioned, part of our vision. Is uh, what comes, and he had mentioned it from uh, Revelation seven, uh, verse nine. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tr- nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I think that's a glorious picture of God's people over the face. You know, all these people from all these different tribes and languages, um, they were gathered one day, worshiping. The Lord, And what really will matter won't be our differences, our language differences, or our ethnic differences, but what's going to be folk, uh, the focal point will be the Lamb, will be Jesus Christ. Now, how does that work itself out now, when our attention is riveted on so many other things, and not Jesus Christ? And that's part of what we, as Las Tierras, struggle with. We are uh, Puerto Ricans, we are Americans, we are Mexicans, we are Mexican-Americans, we have some African-Americans, and so we're a mix. And there are some days where you can feel the tension. When you say, some of our Mexican brothers and sisters or American brothers and sisters will say, man, we just want to hang out with people like us. And I say to them, very often I say to them, I said, you know, there is only one person that can bring us all together. We don't eat the same food, we don't speak the same language, we don't have the same values. Half of you are late to the church every day, you know, every Sunday. And the other half are complaining about those who are late. What brings you together? There's an awesome gospel at work in our midst and in your life. And that's that's this vision. Is it easy? No. But is the Christian life easy? No. So, it's, so we press on, and, and what you're doing here in terms of community service, that's how we got started as well. Long before we even met uh, as a church and had a worship service, uh, we were doing events and outreach and service in the community, whether it was constructing homes, a sports camp, starting neighborhood associations, whatever it was. And people would say, where is your church? I said, we don't exist yet in the kind of image you have of church. We don't have a place. We don't even meet on Sunday. But we're a group of people loving this community. And, and God has honored that. And believe me, it's not because I orchestrated that. <laughs> I had the idea, and I said, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but God has been so good to bring it to pass. Uh Well, what I want to share with you tonight, and it's kind of hard, kind of jumping in uh, the middle of Genesis, but we'll see how it works. But I really want to give you a sense of, I think, what changed my life about uh, 10 years ago. I'd been a pastor for many years. I served as a missionary in Spain for 13 years and uh, before coming to El Paso seven years ago. But it was a a comprehension and understanding of the gospel that's not just in the New Testament, but it's in the Old Testament. And to begin to see what God was doing long before, you know, it's so evident when you get to the life of Jesus. So I hope what we can see together tonight is what's Christianity about and how do we see it in the life of, of Jacob? Let me start with uh, a story. Uh, because I was a missionary, uh, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Turkey all right, and for a conference. And there in, in Turkey, we were there for about a week. And, of course, you go the little shops and everybody you know, wants to serve you chai and other drinks. And uh, I have a lot of great stories. But one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to buy some Turkish rugs. And so I understood that if you go into a shop to try to buy a Turkish rug, you better be smart. And so I studied, you know, and I talked with people who had experience in bartering because that's what you've got to do. You've got to barter. And so I talked with all these people, and after about five days, I said, okay, I got this. And so I go into a little shop. I look around. I go to another shop. I look around, and I chit-chat with uh, vendors. I finally settle on one shop, And I sit down and I begin the bargaining process. I thought I was doing pretty well. I had my eye on this one carpet, but I really didn't want that one carpet. You know, I wanted the other carpet, but I didn't want to let that guy know that. See, And so I go through all this deal. At the end of it, you know, about an hour, lots of tea, a lot of conversation. I walk out with two different Turkish carpets. (laughs) That evening, I get home, I think about it, and I go... He robbed me. (laughs) He robbed me. I thought I was getting a great deal. But this man was so good, he deceived me and I didn't even know it. I, I paid way too much for those carpets. But at the time, I felt like I was getting the best deal in the world. Now, why do I start there? Because this whole idea of deception... It's not something you find just in one culture. You find it in all cultures, but you find it in Jacob. You know, Jacob's name, he's the, the deceiver, the supplanter. That's who he is. You know? And yet, God works in a guy who's conniving, you know, who deceives, who cheats, who lies, much like myself, much like you. And God is gracious to him. But he had to wake him up to the fact that he was a deceiver. And so we're not going to get into all of his story tonight, but we'll, we'll get into some of it. Now what happens is Jacob, the deceiver, well, he deceived his brother and his, and his dad, Isaac. And if you know the story, right? Jacob has another brother, Esau. They're twins. Esau's older. However, uh, and so Esau should receive the blessing from Isaac, his, their dad, right? And Isaac is getting old, and he says to Esau, he says, Go out and, and hunt, you know, prepare my favorite meal, come back, and I'll give you the blessing. Now that was really important, in that culture, to receive this blessing from your father, Isaac, because he had received it from Abraham. And this is all this, throughout the Bible, this is what's called the covenant blessing. Well, Jacob wanted that blessing, and Jacob's mom, Rebecca particularly, wanted that blessing. And so what they did was, while Esau is out hunting Jacob dresses up like Esau. He puts on goat skin and hair because his brother Esau is hairy. And so he gets the blessing from his dad. Well, needless to say, Esau is angry. And so he promises that he's not going to rest until he kills his brother. Well, that... I mean, some of you have siblings, and I'm sure you've heard that before. I'm going to kill you. And um, (laughs) you've never taken it seriously, you know? No, they won't really do that. Mom and dad are here. But... (laughs) Mom and dad were there, but the problem was that Isaac, you know, he loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. The family was conflicted. They had some problems, like any other family that we might see today. Well, so, because of this fear of dying and being killed by his brother, Jacob, you know, at his mother's request, says, Go, um, Mom says, Go to Laban, go to my brother in Haran, which is about 500 miles east, that's a long ways off, and you stay there until Esau's wrath has subsided. And so he takes off, and this is what we pick up in the story in Genesis 28. He takes off, uh, he begins his journey, he's perhaps walking all day and he comes as the sun sets, you know, after thinking about what it's like to leave his family, he's all alone. He enters, he finds a little place in the middle of the wilderness to sleep, you know, and there something dramatic happens. when he thinks he's all alone. And he thinks, you know, his greatest concern at this point is running away so his brother doesn't kill him. And he's lost, or maybe not lost, but he's certainly lonely. And he's got a long ways to go. Now what happens? If you look, um, if you have your Bible and you want to look along. In verse 11, "...he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down that place to sleep." I would imagine most of you have gone camping, backpacking, right? And if you've gone camping, you know, you don't generally bring your pillow. Maybe some of you do. I don't know, but most of us don't bring our pillows, you know. What what do you use for a pillow? Use your clothes, right? Use your clothes, you roll them up. So isn't it kind of bizarre? Isn't it bizarre that he would use a stone? I mean, how many of you have used a stone for a pillow? Some of you, some one that to ask. All right, that'd be some, somebody around here, right? But imagine, it just seems kind of strange. And, and Dr. Tim Keller has this insight. I think it's really interesting. Um, he says, is it because he uses stone as, as a pillow because he really has nothing? You know, he... He has nothing to ball up and to put on his head. See, he's received from his father this blessing—blessing of descendants, blessing of land, a lot of prosperity. So, so God is promising Jacob all this blessing, all this good stuff. But right in that moment, he has absolutely nothing. You know, and so he uses a stone because he's penniless. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's running for his life. And we live in that tension. Those of you who are Christians, you've read the promises of God, the promises of blessing. You've heard them. And they're great, aren't they? But the problem is, somehow there's a gap. Our experience doesn't seem to latch on to the reality of those blessings. The blessing seems absent in our experience. We know God says he loves us. He promises to be with us, to direct us. But there are days when we don't feel his love. We feel alone and we feel penniless. That's the reality. Not too long after I became a Christian, leaving my old life, um, I struggled I struggled because even though I had repented of my sins and my way of thinking and my way of living, those things didn't disappear overnight. And I'm reading the scriptures and I'm opening up God's Word. I'm I'm looking for promises, right? Because I'm struggling with my sin. And uh, I'm thinking, God, I see the promises here. You talk about power. You talk about new life. But why is it I feel that my life sucks and I'm still sucked into temptation after temptation? And there was such a big gap for me at that period in my life between the promises of God and the reality and the experience of those promises. He'd promised me great things, but yet I felt like a beggar. And I did a terrible thing that night. I took my Bible and I said, I don't believe one word of it. I closed it up and I said, God, not until you show yourself will I believe it. Well, that was a frightening thing to say. And for the next two weeks, I was scared out of my pants because I thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't say those kind of things to God, I, you know. But you know, He was so gracious and patient with me. Um, you know, but that's the reality: this this disconnect between the promises and our experience of those promises. But but then, what what happens is that Jacob has his dream, so he's. He's on his nice, soft rock, you know, and, and somehow he's able to dream. And he has this dream, you know, that God uh, gives to him. And now, there are three things that he sees in that dream. He sees a stairway or a ladder, okay? Now, some of your Bible translations have ladder. And it's better to understand the term not as a narrow ladder that you might find in your garage, but more like a ramp, Or some stone stairway, and some have thought it to be more like the ziggurat, you know, that you see in uh, in some ancient cultures, like the Mayan temple, you know, going going up. And so he sees this this stone stairway, and it you know from the earth, and it touches up, and it goes all the way up to the heavens. All right, that's unusual. But then he sees as well angels on the stairway. Now, I don't know the last time you had some visions and dreams of angels. But, you know, it's been a while since I've had one. I'm hoping to one day. But, here you go. Angels, you know, going down the stairway, going up. Now, angels, if you recall, are God's messengers. They're ministering herald spirits sent to do the work of God in His name. They're carrying out the decrees and the plans of God. And so, right here, when perhaps Jacob is thinking, I'm all alone, God is showing him that he is at work. And he's sending these angels down and up, down and up. They're doing God's work. So God is at work. Even though, perhaps for a while, Jacob did not discern that. It may seem to him that God was absent or distant. But no, not so. But even beyond the angels, in verse 13 it says, He saw the Lord the Lord stood above it. Now there's a grammatical question whether this vision of the Lord was that he stood above the ladder or the stairway or above Jacob or beside Jacob. And I tend to think that it's above or beside Jacob, who's later on Jacob acknowledges that the Lord is in this place. And here is, here is a lesson for us and for Jacob, is that The Lord, the Lord descends and descended to him. The Lord came down to him. He was asleep. He wasn't looking for God. He was running away from the promised land and from the covenant people. And he was going to a distant foreign place. But God is pursuing him. God draws near to him this is the pattern of faith and we will we'll, we'll talk about this more in a few moments okay but this is the pattern of faith that God draws near to his people All right. and so what does he hear so he sees these things but he also hears other things he hears God speak um, in this dream there are various things about the number of descendants and other promises and other blessings but what does he say to him in verse 15 I will be with you. He thought he was all alone. Just no. To this man who felt alone, he says, "I will be with you." He doesn't say, "Jacob, get your life together. Be a better man. Be a real man. Try harder." No, well, he doesn't say that. He doesn't even rebuke him for all his deception and his scheming. No, he promises his presence. That's very unusual. That's not how we usually think about Christianity at all. And then he says, I will watch over you. I will keep you. I'm going to protect you. I will provide for you. I will bless you. And I'm going to bring you back to this land. This is a very hopeful passage for people who are running, who are lost, who are deceivers, who are messed up. And why? Because Jacob has just committed a bunch of sin, and yet God is near him. And what is it you and I normally think about when you and I commit sin, when we transgress God's law? We think, that's it, God has left me. Right? I've messed up so bad, God cannot come near me. And yet we see the God who draws near to sinners. Not waiting for Jacob to clean up his life. Not waiting for Jacob to improve morally. No, not at all. You see, what's amazing, that blessings and the presence of God come to a man who is dishonest, who is immoral, who is a deceiver, who steals what doesn't belong to him, who lies... And you could read in chapter 27 all about his lies. And yet God confirms the blessings to him. And maybe you're here and you are experiencing this and you go, well, you know, I used to be pretty close to the Lord. I used to go to church. But then I got caught up in a particular lifestyle, doing particular things that I know that, you know, don't please God. And you feel so separated from God, and you go, I'll never find my way back. Right? And then what do you try to do? The same thing I try to do. You try to be a little bit more moral in your life. And you think that somehow your morality is going to draw God closer to you. That's not the Gospel. God draws near to you in your immorality and in your sin. You know, no matter what sin you may have committed, I doubt it's the unpardonable sin. Everything that you've done can be pardoned and forgiven by God. See, the dream tells Jacob that God is present, He's providing, that God is on the move. You may not understand all that God is doing in your life, but it doesn't mean that God is not at work. You may not see his hand, but it doesn't mean that God is not at work in your life. But there's another lesson here, and I think it's probably the principal lesson. It's related to this, that the one that that Jacob was fearing, he was fearing Esau, right? But the one he really ought to have feared was God. That's the one he ought to have dealt with. And so... In verse 17, when he wakes up from the dream, it says he was afraid. He was afraid. You know, he says, how awesome, how dreadful is this place. He's trembling. You know. Why is he afraid? Because he realized that he, a sinner, a deceiver, a schemer, a liar, a thief, is in the presence of a holy God. Now... If you know something about that God, you know understand that holiness will kill you, at least from a biblical point of view. You see, and in the presence of the holy God, He's not condemned. He's not killed. You know, there's no word of condemnation from the Lord. There's not a you know, wow, Jacob, I didn't know you were like that. You're really messed up, buddy. I got to go find somebody else. I mean, you don't, you don't hear that. But So the question is, how can a God who's holy, and, the, and that means that He can't you know, tolerate sin, because it's contrary to His nature. How does God who's so holy and pure, how does He relate to you and to me who are not holy? How does He relate to Jacob, who's immoral, a deceiver, and a thief, and a liar? How does He do that? How does that happen? Is there not some kind of contradiction? And so, there's only one way to understand this. Is this the answers given to us as you look down the corridors of time from this event, go down 2,000 years in history, and you look at the person of Jesus? Because, as the, the passage that was read earlier from John, Jesus takes the dream of Jacob and he applies it to himself. It's an amazing thing that he does. And remember the, the passage that Philip finds Nathaniel and tells him that he has found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds with, Can anything good, much less the Messiah, come from this nothing insignificant town of Nazareth? And Philip says, Come and see. And they go to where Jesus is, and Jesus says to Nathaniel, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Oh, I think that's fascinating. There's no deceit in him, but, contrast, Jacob, in whom there is much deceit. And Nathanael asked Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus responds, I saw you under the fig tree. I've always kind of been perplexed by that. What was he doing under the fig tree? You know, Jesus just said, I saw you under the fig tree. And he goes, You did? You saw me there? I thought I was the only one. I didn't think anybody saw me. Yeah? And now his heart must have just dropped. But whatever it was, whatever it was, it was significant enough For him to say, Oh, I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. I mean, that that is pretty cool. I I wish I could do that with people. I saw you. (laughs) You know, and Jesus says, Because I said I saw you in the fig tree, you believe? He says, You're going to see greater things. Truly, truly, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See what Jesus is doing. He's taking that event in Jacob's life and how God appeared to him. And he's saying, I am the stairway. He says, The angels ascend and descend not to the Son of Man, but on the Son of Man. On Jesus. He is that stairway that Jacob saw. But perhaps didn't understand at the time. He's that link between heaven and earth. He's the one that joins sinners, deceivers, and liars, and immoral people like you and me, with a holy God. It's through Jesus that we can have an encounter and a relationship with God. And you keep that in mind, that event In John chapter 1. Now I want you to go backwards in time from Genesis 28. Go to Genesis 11. Now, what happens in Genesis 11? You know that, the Tower of Babel, right? See, Jacob, after the dream, called the place that he was at, um, he called it Bethel, well, he was in Bethel and Luz, but he called it the Gate of Heaven. And he's alluding, I believe, to Genesis 11. Because in Genesis 11, the people attempt to build a tower with its top to heaven. So a temple, perhaps like a ziggurat, that reached the heavens. They were building a stairway to heaven. And now, what's interesting, Babel, as many of you know, later on came to mean confusion. But originally, in the ancient Near East language, it meant gate of God or gate of heaven. What's going on? I think what we are to learn is that like in Genesis 11 or like many of us religious people try to ascend to make their way up the rung of their own moral ladder to God see if you want to be religious that's the very nature of religion, there's a movement from the people to God from earth to heaven things that you do in order to ascend to God see the way you reach God is by doing certain things by performing or not doing certain things avoiding sin then you go that's how I'm going to reach God that's how I'm going to get up to this ladder to God's presence so what do you do what do people do well you work you pray you paint houses you give money to the poor you do all these things right because you go I am I'm going up the ladder. I am scaling the wall. Some of you have been to Glorietta. I know that, You've, uh, and they have that that wall that you scale, right? And how many of you gone up that wall? Have you been there, right? Successful? Easy? Hard? Well, piece of cake for some people. For older people like me, it's a little harder. So. <laughs> So my kids, you know, they say, yeah, Dad, you take the hard side, and we'll take the easy side, all right? And so they go up without any problem. But, you know, I'm struggling, and half hour later, I finally get to the top, you know? The next day, my arms are sore, and I feel I'm going to die, right? And I say, well, that's the Christian life, right? You know, you, you just try to find the right peg, right place to hold your, put your hand, your foot, and you just wrestle all day to you sweat, and sometimes it's a little iffy, but you finally make it. Is that how you view the Christian life? Well, it's not that way at all. You know, the vision that God has given to Jacob and what Jesus tells Nathanael is not that you ascend to heaven by your efforts. The Gospel is not you, your efforts, you know, building things in your life which take you to God, but it starts with God coming down to you. He comes to you. And what's interesting, because if you've, if you've been in these kind of... Uh, these walls that you scale. Usually there are people up there on top with ropes and harnesses, right? For dummies like me and old people like me. They don't want us to die and get a lawsuit. And so, and the, the truth of the matter is, and I think that's a better picture, sometimes we're scaling the Christian life, you know? But it's not our own power, but rather we're being pulled up by God. We're being pulled up by Jesus. And Jesus is that stairway. See, he's come down to us, because like Jacob, we could never be good enough. And that was the hardest thing in my life to learn. I grew up in a, rel- in a relatively religious home, where my parents taught me, you've got to be good, you've got to be moral, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and then God will love you. But what a revolutionary concept, when it, w- the gospel finally penetrated my heart and said, no, that's not it. It's God coming down to me, because, let me give you another picture. In part of our community outreach, we were building a house for a family who lost their house in a fire. In part of, and part and actually Lydia, all right, uh, was there, and, and, and some, perhaps some other people were there you know and I remember the day, the week that we put the shingles on the house. Well, you know, so you go up 10 rungs on the ladder, and if you ever carried bundles of shingles, what do they weigh? Fifty, 60 pounds, a little more. All right. So, so here's this thing, you know. So you pick up, you know, this bundle of shingles, sixty pounds, and you go up the ten rungs on the ladder, and you go up on the roof, and you, you know, it's it's a hard thing to do. And then so you get some tough guys. I can take two. I can take three. No, they can't. <laughs> no, they cannot. You know, and so we view the Christian life as a bit like that. Okay, I got one bundle of law. All right, on my shoulder. I think I think I can make it well, hold on a second. If you really understood the weight of the law, you wouldn't even get your foot off the ground. But put on the other bundles of the law of God, everything that God would have you to do and to be, and see if you can go up that ladder. You can't. And so, the good news is that Jesus came down. He became the stairway. He became the one who would put the bundle of law on his back. And he would carry it. And then he would put you and me on his back. And carry us up to the Father. That is so radically wonderful. You've got to experience it. You've got to taste it. Not just in your head, but in your life. It will free you. It will free you from all your attempts, vain attempts, to try to please God. And try to rise up to His level. As if you could. And so Jesus, the point of this, and Jacob, I don't think he understood at the time, but we have the whole of Scripture and we can see it. That Jesus is the stairway. And all those all that cheating, all that lying, all our immorality, all our unfaithfulness, Jesus bore in his body on a cross. And there he paid for it. I don't have to pay for it. I can't. Well, if I had to pay, it would be all eternity paying for it. But Jesus Christ paid for every single one of my sins. Every single one of your sins if you trust in Him. What I'm telling you tonight is so simple. Don't make your own stairway to God. God has made one for you. He says, go. Go, walk. Walk on Jesus, my Son. Walk with him. He will carry you. He will take you. Why do you struggle trying to do it on your own? You'll never succeed. So I want to invite you to do two things. Don't pretend that you can really carry the law. Don't pretend that you're not as bad as you are. And look at your performance. Look at your works in the proper light. They're not going to get you to God. What this means is Jesus is everything. I want and I pray for you that you will not know that simply intellectually but that you will experience it. That you will actually experience what it's like to have Jesus carry you to the Father. For Jesus to love you, for Jesus to hold you, for Jesus to be your strength, for Jesus to be your obedience, your holiness, your righteousness. That's hard. It's hard in our world where we want to do so much. But the Christian message is not one of our doing, but that Jesus has done. He's accomplished it. Will you pray with me? Lord, it's hard to believe that um, you would for people like us. you, You know our thoughts and you know our motives. You know our deeds. And what we would expect you to do is to slam us, to hate us, to send us to hell. That's what we hear oftentimes, but there's something so surprising about the way you are towards sinners in your grace that you would take the likes of Jacob and even though he's a scoundrel and a liar and a cheat, that you would be present to him and you would make promises, a blessing to him. And I pray, Father, that we who are here, it's all of us, we're all scoundrels and cheats and liars in different ways and at different times. But I pray that you would be so gracious to us and that you would help us That you would enable us to have some experience, a real experience, of you coming into our lives, speaking to us, causing us to see that Jesus is the only way to you, that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, that Jesus has done everything that you require of us, he's done it for us. And help us to live in light of that. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We see dimly, but help us to see clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen.